0: It was a world religions class. And the professor asked that each student bring in something that symbolized their religion. So the Buddhist brought in a little statue of Buddha. The person from the Church of England brought in their church flag. The Catholic brought in a crucifix. The little Church of Christ student brought in a casserole. Because in Churches of Christ, we love to get together to eat. I'm sure you've heard that story before. And in fact, there's lots of different people that tell that story. And and lots of different religious groups claim the casserole. But is there something biblically to the idea of a fellowship? specifically as we start thinking about worship and the role of worship in the church, is there a connection between the Lord's Supper and fellowship meals? More importantly, as we think about this question, what we want to ask ourselves is, what ought to be the role of the Lord's Supper in our worship service? When we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for instance, there are many scholars who believe that what was happening was you had a combination of the Lord's Supper and what was common in the first century as love feasts, and that the abuse of these was making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. And in dealing with that abuse, Paul reminds us of the importance of the Lord's Supper. And this morning, as we begin thinking about our worship service, we want to focus this morning specifically on the importance and the role of the Lord's Supper. And so what we want to do this morning is think about how the Lord's Supper may have been being abused in Paul's day and how Paul's focus on the Lord's Supper reminds us of what ought to be our focus in worship on the Lord's Supper. And that ought to guide us in what we do and how we behave as Christians today, as one body. So let's begin by thinking about the possibility of the abuse that Paul has in mind as he writes in 1 Corinthians 11. And really what we want to do is we want to back up and we want to think about something that Jude writes in his little letter in Jude in verse 12. Jude writes to these Christians and he talks about how there are problems that have crept into the church and their origin of their creeping in seems to be, according to Jude, the abuse of some. Notice what Jude says. Jude verse 12. He says, These are men's who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you, Without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam-wandering stars, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Jude says there are folks that have crept into your love feast. And we could spend a lot of time and spend an entire study just on what Jude has to say here, but our focus for the moment is on the idea of this love feast. What is a love feast? Ferguson suggests that this was the setting of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says there are some who are abusing Paul says some are abusing the Lord's Supper. This seems to fit the context of Matthew chapter 26, verse 20, following, especially verse 21 and verse 26, when Jesus is eating the Last Supper with his disciples before his death. They seem to be eating a meal, and specifically, that meal seems to be a Passover meal, and, and that perhaps this is where the idea of love feast came from, was the idea of a meal. Matthew chapter 26, verse 21. And as they were eating, he said to them, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Again, verse 26, Jesus says, And when, he had eaten, when they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And Jesus appears to be eating the traditional Jewish Passover meal. They had specific things that they did in a specific order, and and they would have uh, c- drinks of c- cups of wine, and 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 they would have mi- uh, particular portions of the meal at certain times. See the same thing in Mark chapter fourteen. We see the same thing in John chapter thirteen, verse twenty-six. But what do we know from history? As we mentioned, Everett Ferguson deals with this in his book, Early Christians Speak. He cites a number of ancient sources that talk about the love feasts. One source is Clement of Alexander, who said, if you shall love the Lord your God and your neighbor, this is the celestial feast in the heavens, but the earthly feast is called a meal, as has been shown from the scripture. The meal occurs because of love. Not love because of the meal, which is proof of a generation's shared goodwill. He's talking about the love feast. Another source, Tertullian, in his writing, The Apology, says our feast shows its motive by its name. It is called by the Greek word love. Whatever is reckoned the cost, money spent in the name of piety is gained, since with that refreshment we benefit the needy. As so with God, there is a greater consideration for the lowly. Since it is a religious duty, it permits nothing vile, nothing immodest. Again, he says, we eat the amount that satisfies the hungry. We drink as much as is beneficial to the modest. We satisfy ourselves as those who remember that during the night we must worship God. We converse as those who know that the Lord listens. Again, he's describing this idea of a, love feast Pliny the Younger in letter to Trajan talks about what the early church did as he seeks guidance on whether or not to persecute Christians for being Christians he says he called two Christians that had been arrested and had them to describe what they did in their assembly and he says but they declared that the sum of their guilt or error had amounted only to this that on an appointed day They had been accustomed to meet before daybreak, to recite a hymn finally to Christ as to God, and bind themselves by an oath. After the conclusion of this ceremony, it was their custom to depart and meet again to take food. But it was ordinary, harmless food. Many suggest that maybe he's talking about a worship service followed by a later love feast. What we know for sure is that the early church would have these love feasts, And in these love feasts, they would have at the center of the love feast the Lord's Supper. And at some point, those have become separate activities. Maybe because of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because some were abusing the Lord's Supper in the middle of these love feasts, where they would have a full-on meal. And in the midst of it, have the Lord's Supper. Could that be the occasion of 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Let's consider what Paul says 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and how perhaps the church at Corinth was abusing the Lord's Supper. Notice what it says. We turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul begins in verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 17. But in giving this instruction I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Just as Tertullian recalls the moderation because of worship, Paul calls into question those who eat and are drunk. He says, one person eats his supper first and gets his fill, and another has nothing. Apparently, they didn't even wait for some of those who were in the church to arrive. Look at verse 33. He says, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So these were Christians apparently who were eating a larger meal around the Lord's Supper, and forgetting the very purpose of the Lord's Supper. Those who had an abundance did not share with those who were in need. Quite likely, at the Church of Corinth, there were some people that were freedmen, perhaps even wealthy individuals, and then you probably had a good number of the members of the church there. At Corinth there were slaves and and limited in the time that they could come and participate in the worship service, and they were being left out. But clearly in the middle of what Paul is talking about is the Lord's Supper. And he says, what have you done to the Lord's Supper? What then ought to be the significance of the Lord's Supper? How should we use the Lord's Supper today? When we return to Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 and 27, we see that it is both a thanksgiving and a blessing. Notice what Jesus says as he's with his disciples on that final night before his arrest. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 26. Jesus says while they were, or the text says that while some were eating, Jesus took some bread and gave, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup, And given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus says, this is both a thanksgiving and a blessing. He blesses the bread and the cup and he gives thanks. And he says, this is my body. This is my blood through whom forgiveness comes. In fact, the Greek word Eucharist or the term eucharist comes from the greek word for giving things in first corinthians chapter 11 in verse 20 it's called the lord's supper by the apostle paul it is an honor and it is to honor jesus for his work on our behalf of course as we look at first corinthians chapter 10 Verses 14 through 22, we find out that not only is it the Lord's Supper, not only is it a thanksgiving, not only is it a way to remember what Christ has done for us, but is it also our communion with God and with one another? Notice what Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In this context, Paul is talking about eating at the, the Lord's table compared to eating with or at the table of, of idols. But notice what Jesus says. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one body, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What is Paul saying? But he's saying here that we have communion with God. We can't be at the table of God and at the table of idols. We're at the table of the one true God as we break the bread together. But then he also says, as we do that, we are partaking of the bread with other Christians because we are one body. It is a communion with God and a fellowship with other Christians. As we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 24, Paul says that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, as he quotes Luke chapter 22, verse 19. But the word for memory or memorial here is deeper than our idea of the English word memorial. It comes from the Greek word anamnesis, which means to actually relive a transaction, according to Ralph Martin. When we eat the Lord's Supper, we're not just reflecting back. We're not just thinking about what happened to Jesus. In a way, we are reliving what happened to Christ as he walked on this earth in his fleshly body, free of sin, yet surrounded by sin, in order to die for sin. And as that perfect sacrifice, he gave his body so that we could spend an eternity with God. He allowed his arms and his feet and his wrists to be pierced with those nails. He allowed his back to be scourged and ripped open by the Roman scourges. The blood flowing freely to be a sacrifice for our sins so that someday we could spend an eternity with his Father in heaven. As we eat the Lord's Supper, we ought to be reliving that. Finally, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 26, that as we eat the Lord's Supper, as often as we eat of it, we declare the Lord's death until He returns. There is an aspect in which we are looking forward to the return of Christ. Of course, as Paul says in verse 25, that it is the blood of the covenant. The blood of Christ is the blood of the covenant. Participating in the meal unites us, if you will, with the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. It is the blood of the covenant. The covenant which Jesus ratified through his death. The covenant, perhaps, which Jeremiah looked forward to in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31, when speaking the words of God, he says, I will forgive your sins and remember your iniquities no more. What an awesome covenant we have. And the Lord's Supper helps us to relive that and to dwell on that and to think about that and to remember that. And the the impact isn't just what Christ has done, but what I ought to do in response to that. There is a book out a number of years ago by one of our brethren in which he calls for a radical restoration. And, and so much of his book is tremendous. And, and I'm, uh, I'm, I greatly enjoyed reading that book. One of the things he suggests is that maybe in our modern day worship service, just breaking the bread and just drinking a thimble sized cup of juice isn't really following through on the Lord's Supper that maybe we need to make it more of what we do in worship. There are some who say, well, maybe we need to go back to having that big, huge meal. And yet there are other brethren, other scholars, who point out the fact that following what Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it seems to be that in later years, the church separated out that fellowship meal, that love feast that we spoke about earlier. So that when Jude writes in Jude verse 12, it seems to be a separate occasion from the Lord's Supper. I think we need to be careful in saying that we need to have a full-on meal in the middle of the worship service. But I can be certain of this. It needs to be a place of honor and respect in a worship service. So that leads us to our final consideration this morning. What should we think of the Lord's Supper? How should we review it? First of all, we are to become one with Jesus' suffering, by reliving what Jesus endured on our behalf. As we eat the bread and as we drink that fruit of the vine, we ought to think about and really allow ourselves to be enveloped in the idea of what Jesus endured, how he lived his life, so that he could be a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. It should be more than a ritual that we go through week by week. And I know that's tough because we say the same things pretty much every week. We do the same thing every week. In fact, there are some who say that's why you shouldn't do the Lord's Supper every week. But the reality is that seems to be why the church gathered, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, on a regular basis every week was to eat the Lord's Supper. And so we need to have that focus, but we need to be diligent and purposeful as we gather around the table to eat the Lord's Supper. Secondly, we are to be one body without division. As a new church plant, that's not really an issue for us, but it may be at some point. In some congregations, they struggle with that, but we need to realize that as we eat together, we are one body. We are fellowshipping. We are communing with God and with each other. Third, we are to look to the past, what Jesus has done, and remember that. also look to the future and what Jesus will do, calling us home to be spend an eternity with him. We're able to do that because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We know that he rose in his physical body. He ascended and went to heaven. And there's a day coming when he's going to call us home. And we're going to be raised or changed in a twinkling of an eye of an eye into a spiritual, eternal, immortal being because of what Jesus has done for us. And we will be able to spend an eternity with him. And that's what we're looking for. As we gather around this table every Sunday, let us relive. Let us remember. Let us honor the blood, the body sacrifice and the return of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you need to be united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection so that you too can have that forgiveness of sins and be free from the bondage of sin and look forward to that day of Christ's return so that you too can go home as God's son or daughter. If that's what you need to do, won't you come? Let's together we stand and say.